whenever I've had conflict, I've come at it from a calm place and I've come at it from a clear communication place. Even just using your hands, uh, your voices, you know, that kind of calming um, situation, really. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy LaPalta. Thank you very much for joining me. On this podcast, I try and focus on the importance of professional relationships in building your success as a leader, as a business executive. And very often we do that through the stories that my guests tell and I've got two guests today who I've both known them for a number of years and knowing their backgrounds it it immediately came to me that there would be a very rich seam of conversation if I was to get them on the podcast even more so when I tried to introduce them to each other and I found out they already knew each other Colin Mahay is a former superintendent and temporary chief superintendent of Derbyshire Constabulary. And as a police officer, he experienced the Bradford riots. He successfully navigated his county, Derbyshire, through national riots in 2011, where they didn't uh, really get affected in the way the rest of the country did because of Cole's uh, focus on emotional intelligence. And he talks a lot about that uh, during our conversation to come. And Laura Ash, someone I've worked with very closely over the last couple of years since we were on a course together, a very inspirational uh, woman who's a former special branch and counter-terrorism officer. And both Laura and Cull experienced their own challenges with conflict within the police force as, as well as outside. Uh, and, and interestingly, both as part of their roles and as part of their jobs internally and we explore both through the conversation and they both subsequently moved into roles where they help others with coping mechanisms through emotional intelligence as i said and general well-being so our focus today is the power of professional relationships in managing conflict and i began by seeking to explore just what Carl and Laura learnt uh, by serving in the police force in roles that brought them into direct contact with highly confrontational situations. Uh, how did they see conflict come up? How did they cope with it themselves and see others cope with it? And what did they learn from that? So I spent a lot of time um, on the beat. So for people listening, that would be in uniform um, and riding around in the emergency response vehicles which are the nice bright colors you know of the car (laughs) and within those sorts of scenarios you never quite know what you're going to get because you're just on the radio and you're ready they're ready to respond so conflict I think as cool said can be just around the corner and I think the the way that you manage conflict within the police is very much down to the training that you have and you definitely have to have training in order to manage conflict whether that is within a public order setting or you just turn up to a domestic violence situation um so as i say i've got lots and lots of different stories i have seen conflict managed badly and that's when you go into a property i remember going in um with a couple of officers before and 
somebody is in there and they're not happy that the police are in there yeah. at all whatsoever. And unfortunately, some of the officers before have gone in at that higher level, the same level or higher than the person that is kind of, you know, kicking off, as we used to say. And unfortunately, for me, that's not the way to deal with conflict. You need to kind of come in at a calmer. You need to diffuse that energy. And whenever I've had conflict, I've come at it from a calm place and I've come at it from a clear communication place, even just using your hands and, you know, your, um, uh, your, uh, your voices, you know, that kind of calming um, situation, really. Um, but there are times when you do need to step it up and you just need to read that situation. I remember specifically one time um, we was doing a raid at seven o'clock in the morning um, on a, a place where I used to police and I was meant to be positioned out the back, which was safe. OK, and you've got all the guys rushing in the front door and I'm out the back just in case anybody comes out. But it's like, oh, it was seven in the morning. That's not going to happen. Guess what happened? <laughs> I saw the window open and I saw the guy who, you know, obviously we was after jump out the window. Now, there's me on my own seven in the morning. You've got immediate conflict then because you've got a chase. You know, what do you do? And you have to immediately kick into action. Um, and I remember chasing him and I was kind of on my own on the radio um, kind of shouting where I was going. And I saw him go up into a field and then he started to come back round and he was shouting abuse and, you know, um, being really quite nasty. And it's going to sound ridiculous, but this is what I did. I hid in a bush. Right. But I hid in the bush because I knew he was coming back my way. So I thought, I'll jump out and I'll grab him. (laughs) And I was thinking all the while, this is, you know, this conflict, what's going to happen here? And within that moment, you really had to step up, take charge. But you had to be calm and you had to be in control, but you had to be very precise with what you were saying. Anyway, arrested him. He was still gobbing off. So he had a Section 5 warning, which Kula know all about. And um, he got put in the police car. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different stories. But then when I went into counterterrorism, it was different because you weren't always within that high energy. It was very much about intel and creating relationships, really, to be honest. Well, let's come back to that in a bit, because I think obviously this is a a podcast about professional relationships. So even though that might not be to the conflict theme, I think that's something that, that will be worth exploring. There are a couple of things I want to pick up on from what you said. First of all, you're in the bush, but you didn't tell us how you then arrested. Did he run past you and everyone else arrested him? Did you jump out and go, boo? What what actually <laughs> what happened? I- I actually jumped out yeah. and I did pull my parva spray because I'm on my own. Mm. You know, I'm a female. He's a lot bigger than me. Um, but, yeah, I did jump out on him and, and kind of tackle him myself because everybody else was yeah. kind of like chasing after me and had no option. But, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Policing the Laura Ash way. I, I, I just I think that's fantastic. Um, on, on a more serious note, uh, you, you talked about uh, – needing to be not on the same level as the heightened conflict, um, the aggressor, if you like. 
I, I want to ask this question without getting political about it because uh, I don't think this is the place for that, but I think it's an interesting conversation from, from what we're looking to discuss. In America, obviously, there's been the big movement uh, to defund the police. Uh, and, you know, based on, on all the experiences and all the shootings and the impact on particularly on minority communities in, in the States, the defund the police for whatever you want is probably a terrible slogan, but I've listened to the arguments behind it. Uh, and one of the core arguments is that too much um, activity is undertaken by police that would be better handled by social workers, for example, uh, and and people who are trained to work specifically with mentally ill and, and so forth, and that the police are coming in in that heightened state of anticipation to deal with aggression, whereas a social worker or someone equipped to deal with, with mentally ill people would approach it from a different angle. What would be your perspective on that and, and what were your experiences of that? Is, is there a case to be made there? I think it's two very different scenarios. So when you are in the police, you are being called because there is an emergency going on straight away that you need to deal with. And when you get there, it's usually carnage. However, when you've got a social worker, and I feel when you've got um, someone that works with mental health, number one, you haven't got the stigma of being a police officer. And that can be very frightening for somebody, especially if they have got mental health issues. Yeah. Um, plus, there is a stigma around the police that a lot of people don't like the police. Yeah. And sometimes people who do have social services um, don't like the police. So I think you've got a very two very different dynamics there. The social worker would have built a relationship. Um, you know, they would have not be going into something where it's heightened and, and um, you know, fought in that situation. So I think it, it, it's kind of one peg for one and one peg for the other, if that yeah. makes sense. And I think, I mean, I'm tempted to say that obviously that's a movement in the States and policing here and policing in the US will be very different. And then you look at what happened with the, the former footballer, Dalian Atkinson, um, where he was he, he was killed by two police officers when he was having a mental breakdown. Um, now, again, I'm not passing comment on that, but it, obviously that would be a, a, a case where that argument would be put forward, I'm sure. Um Cole, let, let's bring you into this, the conversation on this point. Uh, have you seen uh, occasions where conflict has been maybe handled the wrong way because it's the wrong people or, or the wrong mindset where people are, are, are coming in? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I don't think you can be in a job like the police service and, and not see this kind of stuff, Andy. Um, at the end of the day, police officers are just human beings. And as well trained as we are to cope with any eventuality, and we, you know, one of the things I guess police officers have always got to be is ready, ready to adjust to the, sh the shifting circumstances. And you literally don't know what's around the next corner. Sometimes you have to respond at, from this level. Sometimes you have to bring it down. And you just have to be that level of, um, you know, um, that level of prepared and that level of being able to adjust your style. Now, you know, as you know, emotional intelligence is my thing. This is what uh, you know I'm passionate about, and I go into all sorts of organisations and teach emotional intelligence and leadership. But one of the fundamental things about emotional intelligence is about understanding your social context or the environment in which you're in, and then building relationships. Now, those are two very, very important parts of emotional intelligence. And I've been in many situations in the police service 
and beyond the police service, to be quite honest. Um, I've been in many situations where I've seen a colleague who has approached something with the pure technical training that they've got, whether it's self-defense, whether it's the legal precedent that they might have, the legal authority, and they've relied purely on that. And then are surprised why the situation seems to have gone out of control. So, I mean, a good example of this would be, I remember when I was a very, very young uh, police officer and um, I was maybe nine stone wet through, you know, I was a really young lad. I wish I could sort of uh, regain some of that slimness now. Um, but uh, we got called, my, my, my colleague and I got called to a, a, a man causing a disturbance on the street. So it was a hot summer's day. We pulled up down the street in our police car and sure enough, there was this huge titan of a man uh, stripped down to his uh, stripped down to his jeans, uh, bare chested, a huge tattoo on his back. I'll never forget that huge tattoo on his back, and his back was literally like this. It was like you know, he was like a muscle man. And I was like, wow, he's a big boy. My friend uh, got out of the car, and this man was walking around shouting. And what had happened was that the postman had come, and he'd attacked the postman. The truth of it was that this man had mental illness and didn't know what he was doing. And he saw the postman as being someone who had come to uh, attack him. So all the neighbors were down one end of the street and he was uh, waving his shirt around and shouting loudly. And we were the only two police officers there. And as we approached him, I'm there trying to calm him down, trying to find out his first name and tell him my first name and talk to him at a different level, whereas my friend had already got his handcuffs out. It was in those days where we had old-fashioned handcuffs, and the handcuffs were in a little pouch on your belt, not quite the equipment that modern police officers have. We didn't have CS gas. So we had a little wooden stick in, in a hidden pocket, a secret pocket in our trousers called a truncheon. I've got it on the, on the wall now to remind me of those halcyon days. And uh, my friend got out. He had his truncheon in his hand. He had his handcuffs in the other hand. And, um, I mean, he wasn't a big chap himself, my friend. Uh, and he went up to this chap and he whacked one of the handcuffs on the wrist. All hell broke loose. He literally lifted my friend up and he was waving him around in the air. This, this is how big this guy was. I'm trying to hold his other hand down, but he's dragging me along with him. So I thought, this is all wrong. And I said to my friend, release him from the handcuffs and actually walk away. Let me talk to him. And we ended up having a chat and we ended up you know, swapping first names. And I told him, you know, this is like my first year in policing. I really don't know what's going on. I'm learning all the time. And maybe I want to learn from him too. Eventually, he says to me, come into my house. And uh, he took me into his house. And we sat in his living room. And I could see that he was very agitated, but he's beginning to calm down. But I knew that one wrong word from me would have sent him over the edge again. We ended up um, having half an hour together. And I'd radioed to my friend and said, look, everything's fine. If, if things aren't well, I'll press the button uh, for you to come in uh, to assist me. And we ended up having half an hour of conversation, a half an hour where I learned his, learned of his woes, his troubles, his failed relationship, and all the things that were bothering him, and why the postman was seen as such a threat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I said to him, "Look, we're going to have to go to the police station. We're going to have to try and sort this out for you, and maybe even get you the help that you need, um, because clearly you've got nobody here to help you." And you know what? Half an hour later, this man had calmed right down. We got into a police car. I got in with him, and we and we drove down to the police station. He didn't want to talk to my friend ever again, uh, so a different police officer had to drive us back. 
So there for me is an example of how emotional intelligence, i.e. building trust, building relationships, changing your language and your style and your demeanor to match the other person, uh, what they call in NLP, you know, uh, mirror matching, yeah. uh, all of these kind of things. I built a rapport with this individual. Now, I do this in business all the time. I do this when I teach my leadership stuff. And, you know, one of the things that's going on in society right now is something called the Great Resignation. So since lockdown, we're seeing masses of people resigning from organizations because uh, of all the things that emotional intelligence is uh, and what they're not experiencing in their own workplaces, i.e. not feeling trusted, not feeling valued, not feeling uh, connected with. You know, it's, it's great that your podcast is called Connected Leadership. Yeah. I think emotional intelligence is all about connected leadership. And in policing, it was all, always about connected, being connected with the other individual, being connected with our communities, being connected with, uh, you know, people that you meet on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and that, for me, is, is not complex. It, it really isn't complex, but some people make it really scientific um, and, you know, talk in big language, fancy language about what it is and why it isn't. But really, it is about trying to see things from the other person's perspective and trying to build that link. And I've seen that time and time and time again in all the conflicts that I've ever seen in the police service and outside of the police service. I, I think that's a great way of, of summarising it. Um, I, I have a similar experience. Just before I share that, Sarah Ring is is uh, watching on Facebook and says good afternoon all. So thanks for tuning in, Sarah. If anyone watching has any comments or questions, please feel free to feed them into the chat uh, and I'll bring them in as and when I can through the conversation. So so my experience of that, and I hadn't really thought about it in terms of this, this conversation until you said that, Carl. Um, Probably not a lot of people know this, uh, but I started my career post-university in the civil service. Um, and I I was in the glamorous roles. My, my first two years, I was a tax collector. Uh, and my next two years, I was a, a social fund officer in the benefits agency. So I was, in, I, I was introduced to conflict at, a, at an early stage as well. And, you know, particularly... You know, as the tax, with the tax side, I was I was dealing with small businesses, and that was fine. I don't think I ever really had any fear for, for any in any case. In the social fund role, I mean, I had to get smuggled out of the office to the station in the back of someone's car with jackets over me um, after someone who'd already served time for walking into the unemployment office with a sawn off uh, started threatening me. And but I had staff who lived on the estates where uh, the claimants were living. I at least I, I was commuting an hour and a half uh, to get there, so I could get away. Uh, but exactly what you say. Uh, there were times when people would come in raging and my colleagues on reception were just heroes because they put up with everything. And you'll have seen this, I'm sure, both of you. The, the reception supervisor that from that day is still a close friend of mine uh, and her team were just brilliant. Uh, and then often that Juliet would turn around and say to me, um, Andy, we'd really like you to see this person even though they didn't qualify to for, for a meeting with me. Uh, and I would, you know, I would always take her lead. And when they sat down with me, they were as good as gold. And all people wanted was to be heard. And it was really interesting hearing that, that difference between your colleague coming out with the truncheon and cuffs and you coming out with two ears and a voice. 
And just the balance between the two, it just reminds me of that time. And sometimes when someone's raging at you, it's not about mirroring where they're at. It's about bringing them to a different space by being, um, by, by, by engaging in a different way emotionally Absolutely. to where they are. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I very often think about is how our brains are working at, in mm. that moment. So um, there's a great book on this called The Chimp Paradox. Yes, uh, yes. Steve, Peters. Steve Peters. Yeah. Um, but in, in very basic language, you know, we have to look at two aspects of our brain, the limbic aspect and what they call the prefrontal cortex, you know, where, where the forehead is. That's the rational part yeah. of our brain. Uh, and the limbic part is the emotional part of our brain. So when we're in a high stress situation and we have to make a decision and we have to deal with something that's in front of us, uh, all of our information that comes into our body goes straight to the limbic brain first and foremost. It's the fastest part of our brain. It's the oldest part of our brain. Sometimes they call it the reptilian brain. Yeah. But it's also the part of the brain that also has a fear receptors in them, two tiny little things called the amygdala. The amygdala make a decision. Is this thing a threat to me? If it is, let me activate different parts of my brain to make sure that I can fight, flight, or freeze. But unless we engage the rational part of our brain, we're never going to make uh, objective decisions. We're not going to make rational, clear decisions. We'll end up fighting and flighting all over the place without any clear idea of what we're doing. So I found that in many of the conflicts that I ever was involved in, whether it's police officers or whether it's uh, riots, you know, I used to be a match commander, so I've seen plenty of football disorder. And, you know, we saw it a couple of weeks ago with uh, yeah. Hungary versus uh, England. And I've got so many views on what, what happened to the police there uh, because I was one of those police officers. Uh, what you see is people who ordinarily could be professional people doing very sensible jobs. They come into the football environment, suddenly they turn into these animals almost. Uh, they turn into this group dynamic. They, they, they get sucked up into a group dynamic and they're completely led by the Olympic brain. And that can be the same for the police officers too. You can see police officers, and you talked about some of the things that happen in America, but they happen here as well. They happen yeah. all over the world. It's when, simply when, people don't engage their rational brain and they go off with, just with a limbic brain. So the fight, flight, or freeze could end up being, I need to shoot this person because I think they're a threat. Whether they're a threat or not is a different matter. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. Just to say on Steve Peters, by the way, Chimp Paradox has been recommended on here a number of times uh, Steve Peters and I spoke at the same conference last week funnily enough um, and I also there's a, a there's an interview on the podcast archive with Paul McGee who wrote Sumo very much on, on, on a similar model and I, I know I introduced Paul to, to Laura and Barry and he's been on your podcast as well um, uh, and, and so I'd recommend you know for, to go deeper on this listen to read the chimp paradox read Sumo listen to the podcast with Paul uh, there's so much there um, to pick to pick up on uh, a couple of things in the chat Bow says so important to, to listen Barry says the red mist sets in uh, you know picking up on the on the limbic system I think right Rather than anything Laura said, um, uh, as one of those football supporters, you know, through the eighties and nineties, I was going uh, to football matches all over the UK and beyond. I think it worked both ways. 
Uh, and this leads on to my next question, because you talk about the animal behavior, animal instinct and herd instinct to the football fans. But as one of those professionals who was perfectly respectable in every other walk of life, I was treated like an animal by police forces, particularly at the height of um, the hooliganism in the, in the late 80s and 90s. Uh, there were certain forces that were worse than others. But I can remember coming off trains, being herded into groups, um, not being allowed you know, it was kettling before kettling became a word, you know, we all knew. Um, and you would try and talk to the police and they wouldn't engage. Uh, so I think it very much goes both ways and it goes to our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Of, and, yeah. you know, I'll hold my hands up, Andy. I mean, I've been a public order commander mm. for best part of two decades and, and then a match commander. And I've been that commander that has mm. held people in abeyance uh, until we managed to um, understand and fine-tune our policing around uh, football matches, we eventually got it to a point where it became intelligence-led. Yeah. And the people that we needed to hold in one position and crocodile back to the stadium were the 200-odd that were yeah. you know, determined to have uh, some kind of violent interaction rather than the 30,000 uh, peaceful yeah. fans. Uh, but I think people, the police service needed to go through that transition because... You may remember from the in the 80s, you know, I was around in the 80s in policing. Uh, the way that we managed football matches was awful. Yeah. You know, we had violence every single weekend of football matches. Uh, whereas if you compare that to the 2000s, we very rarely had violence at football matches. So we had to go through that transition period where I think it started off with this fight or flight. Uh, that we thought that's the only way we're going to do it. These are the technical skills. And then we realized, actually, there's a bit more than technical skills. We need the emotional intelligence skills yeah. and we need the community intelligence skills as well uh, around football. And that's when, you know, I think this country has probably got one of the best um, responses to football policing than anywhere else in the world yeah. at the moment. And I've got a theory on, on when the change came. Uh, and I think it ties in with what l we're going to talk to Laura about in terms of uh, her role in counter-terrorism. So let me come back to you about emotional intelligence in the police force, which I want to do. But let's look at that because, Laura, you said that in your counter-terrorism role, it was much less about conflict and much more about information gathering and relationship building. Um, what Collar's just outlined in terms of that shift in the policing of public disorder at football matches I noticed um, that there became a time as a regular away fan back then where the the local police force to our, our club, Charlton, had a liaison officer who came to the games, home and away. Now, I was running, back in 1990, I was running the train travel for away fans. So I got to know him really well. And he was a great guy and we got on really well, but it wasn't just me in that capacity. All the supporters knew him. And now I've moved away from that scene a little bit now. Um, but I know that those liaison officers are still there. And it's not just the volunteers like myself. Uh, I was supporters club committee at the time. It's not just the volunteers like myself that um, are engaging with those liaison officers. It's the, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right term to use without offending anyone or, or, or soft uh, catching it but it's the, the those more likely to engage in disorder that's that's, that's a, the the, the politic way the, the diplomatic way to put it so they're engaging with the police and they know them by their first name and so forth so they've got that intelligence they've got that relationship the the the, the police officer can let the um 
not only let the hosting force at away games know who to look out for, but they'll travel with them and they'll please the away fans themselves. So that's the relationships and intelligence gathering that you were talking about, Laura, isn't it? How, how mm. Tell us more about the, you know, how that worked in your role in, in counterterrorism. So when I moved over to counterterrorism, um, I was part of an operation um, that was looking at creating relationships within the local community. Because in my time in counterterrorism, we were very much dealing within my role with the threat of ISIS. So we'd had 9-11 and the big threat was radicalisation from within the UK. So my role was very much to liaise with mosques liaise with youth groups, liaise with immigration, liaise with social services to highlight any individuals that could be vulnerable to radicalisation because we'd had the shoe bomber, we'd had the giraffe um, cafe bomb, uh, which were both horrendous things. And those guys were actually, you know, radicalised from within their bedroom. So very much for me, it was about building those relationships with those agencies, but then also meeting with, you know, sort of people from that kind of background as well to understand more about the religion and, you know, the way that they they think and they act each day, because it's a completely different culture than what I'm, you know, used to. So And then from there, I then moved into domestic extremism, which is where you're looking at things like animal rights. Um, We're looking at, you know, EDL, people like that. Again, you know, football stuff. And I think one of the most powerful things within the police force is gathering intelligence. And to gather intelligence, you have to have good relationships with people in the community, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's community leaders or whether it is whether you're dealing with, you know, um, what they call cheers, human resources. Um, do you know what I mean? So it, it's so powerful and so impactive as well. Just, just for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, EDL is the English Defence League, which is uh, white nationalism, uh, basically, mm-hmm. putting it in very simple terms. Um, so, and I'm very much mindful of the interesting stories having a practical purpose. And again, I think this is a good example where you you have people who um, come into a role or you come into a new role, they're sceptical of you, they don't trust you, they think you've got your own agenda. When you're trying to engage with communities that feel ignored, they feel under attack, um, as a lot of the communities you needed to build that relationship with would have been, how did you overcome that initial scepticism, that defensiveness, um, that fear of going against their community, I guess, by opening up to you um, to build the relationships that you needed? Do you know what? It's as simple as just sitting and listening. It, it really is as simple as that. And it's just sitting and it's listening. And if they have had a complaint about stuff that's happened before, you just sit and you just listen. And and it, I, it sounds really simple, but that is all that you do. Because upon that, upon you listening, upon you, you know, really paying attention to that person and understanding them from their point of view, as as Cole said, you have to put yourself in that other people's shoes. That then starts to build a relationship, build trust. And you can't build these things overnight. You know that, Andy, from, you know, stuff that, that, um, that you do. And it is literally just slowly, slowly. And just, you know, checking in, how are things going? If you notice that maybe it's um, 
um, an important date in the calendar. You have a chat with them. Is there anything that we can do to help you with, you know, anything at all whatsoever? Um, and it is literally just about listening and building that rapport through that way. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a it reminds me of a an old Punjabi saying, which I'm going to just try and translate. It says to say it is simple, to do it is hard. And and what Laura's talking about there, this this art of listening, it, it is that simple. It is that level of simple. But actually, it is an art form in its own right. You know, that is emotional yeah. intelligence in practice for me. And try as they might, there was a lot of my colleagues that really struggled to do that. They really struggled to connect with people at that deeper level. You know, with all the strategic partnerships that I was involved in where people used to say, oh, these other organizations aren't as good as a police service. They don't think like us. They don't talk like us. And I thought, isn't that great? Because that's cognitive diversity. What we yeah. need to do is learn how to listen to them and learn how collectively we can achieve a common goal. You know, I was a director of intelligence so i've done quite a bit of work that uh, laura was involved in as well and building those community relationships is so critical because what happens is not only do the the satisfaction and the confidence in from your local community in your into your police force increase but what also happens is you start getting community intelligence and you can take this right back to when I was a street cop walking around a beat. I'd, I'd chat with a guy who five o'clock every morning behind the shops, he'd be burning all the rubbish from all the shops. I'd sit and have half an hour with him because the stuff that he knew was incredible. When I came into work and I was running my department, I always came in half an hour early. Why? Just so I could talk to the cleaners at work because the stuff that they knew was incredible. That's intelligence. But you only build that two-way communication by sitting and listening and really actively listening, as Laura talks about. And it really is that level of simple. But the art of emotional intelligence and building relationships is, is not something that you build overnight. You have to learn that. Yeah. You have to practice and you have to be conscious. I'm very aware on a listening basis of, of my tendency to um, immediately turn it to me you know, what my experience is and so forth. And just the ability to leave that pause at the end and, and digest what someone said. <laughs> Hosting a podcast when you're trying to do everything else and listen so that you can respond to what's being said is great training uh, for it. Might not be what everyone wants to do in order to practice, but it is very good practice for it. If um, it, I interviewed, okay, so obviously I'm very conscious that I'm, I'm doing a live broadcast and this is going out on the podcast in about three weeks. So for those watching live, I interviewed yesterday. For those um, listening to the podcast, um, on the podcast about three weeks ago or two weeks ago, we had Mark Hirschberg. So that interview took place yesterday. And Mark shared some really good tips on listening skills. So that's the, the episode on the career toolkit that um, will be or was on the podcast around the 25th of October. Um, so, uh, well, you know, you've talked a lot about emotional intelligence, uh, Carl, and while I haven't, uh, given the title, um, uh, of emotional intelligence to the podcast, when you're managing conflict, it's, it's core, uh, to, to the way that you approach it. Clearly, we've talked a lot about changes in the police force now from our conversations, both when we originally met and, uh, and in the build up to this, um, I think you came into the police around the mid eighties, if I if I'm right, around the time of the miners' uh, uh, strike. So yeah. let me ask you this question, and it might be an unfair question if it is. Just uh, tell me. 
but I think it would be a really interesting one. Is the, the is the police in the UK emotionally intelligent now? <laughs> and was you know what has the change been since you you originally joined the force in the mid eighties? That is a tough question, but I mean, what I will say is this: uh, diplomatic as ever, I think the police service is more emotional intelligence now than the police service I joined in the early 80s. Um, I think it, it's, it's beginning to grow and beginning to recognize the importance of what we traditionally used to call soft skills and understanding that these soft skills are, are very important. I think it goes way beyond the police service. I think this is in every organization, particularly across our public sector, mm. because in our public sector here in the UK, we tend to have a very bureaucratic approach to the way that we make decisions, and that includes the police service. Uh, I think we need to lessen that a bit more and make it much more emotionally intelligent and, 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 and more sort of intuitive. I, I look at what how police officers talk now. You know, there's more police officers on social media than there was in my day, and that was only seven years ago. I listen to the language that they use, and it's it's much more different than the kind of language that we were allowed to use. So that, I find that encouraging. But this is like a tiny percentage of all the police officers across the United Kingdom. I, I genuinely believe um, that we need to do a wholesale piece of work across the police service, across the fire service, across the uniformed services, because they tend to have a very hierarchical approach to leadership anyway. I think we need to do it across the public sector. I think we need to have a very um, uh, wide scale, wide sweeping approach to understanding how we can embed emotional intelligence into our cultures in our organizations. And I wrote an article on LinkedIn only a few weeks ago where, where, I, stopped, where I said, you need to stop chasing diversity and start changing your culture. What I meant by that was, all of these organizations tend to be very performance-led. And so if you give them a performance target of, you need to have X percentage of this, this grouping within your organization, they'll chase that target, but it doesn't mean that they're changing the organization. What I call demographic diversity, i.e. different colors and different genders and different orientations, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to change the organization. Because if you hire 10 black people, but they've all been to the same school that you went to, they all live in the same area that you live in, they all have the same kind of families, eat the same kind of food, play the same kind of sport that you play, their chances are that their thought process is going to be very similar to yours. So you're just going to create that echo chamber. So true diversity for me is cognitive diversity, where you welcome people who have different ways of thinking, different thoughts, but you're never going to do that if you have a culture that is that is not emotionally intelligent. And I think that's why we have so many people leaving so many organizations over the last 12 months. Organizations need to shift. I think the real challenge and the new challenge for leaders from here on in is to become much more empathic, much more trusting, much more uh, able to listen to people, much more able to connect with people and understand that true diversity means literally everybody is different. People have mental illnesses. People have um, come from different cultures. People are single parents. All of these kind of things. We're made up of this beautiful sort of diversity of people. And if we're going to get the best out of them, we need to allow them to speak from their own position and, and contribute to the overall um, sort of discussion. Barry said on, on Facebook, love this, Cole. And uh, I, I agree. I think that, well, 
regular listeners to, to the podcast will know that I, I bang on about cognitive diversity a lot on here. I think it's so important. Where you talk about um, don't um, stop chasing diversity and start changing your culture. The, one other thing I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, and we've covered this as well, is that people focused on the diversity in DNI and not enough on inclusion. 100%. And I think what you're talking about there is more around the, the inclusion element. Let's assume you've got the diversity in place, but you need to get the inclusion uh, in, into place as well, which is absolutely. I, key. I think if you if we shifted shifted the focus and focused in on inclusion, yeah. diversity will look after itself because then you become an employer of choice. Then you start seeing. Uh, having all of these diverse people looking into your organization, say, hey, I'd love to be in that organization. Mm. It's a bit like, you know, people look at Google and say, wow, I'd love to be a part of Google because Google's got this incredible reputation. It's that that we need to create in all of our organizations. So just to let people sort of in behind the scenes a little bit, uh, when we prepare for a podcast, I'll normally prepare six or seven questions uh, with the understanding that we might not use them all and we might go off in different directions. For today, I only prepared four because I felt that there would be enough um, to just let the conversation flow. I've only asked one of those questions so far and we're, we're, we're on about 40 minutes out of 45. So <laughs> I, I was, I was pretty, pretty accurate in terms of my prediction that the conversation would flow. Because obviously if you don't prepare enough questions, you get a bit nervous that you'll run out of something to talk about. I don't think that's a risk. Um, so there is one of those questions that I do want to explore because I think it's important. I think it will impact a lot of people who listen to this podcast in one form or another. We started off by talking about uh, how you experience and respond to conflict in your role when you were both in the police force. But I know, um, you know, that those conflicts were external. I know from our respective conversations that you both experienced conflict internally inside the police force and that's something that as someone who's not uh and has never been in the police force my guide on this is tv drama where you always see this conflict played out in some form or another in any police drama there's internal conflict in the police force um but let's have a let's have a, a dose of reality. I mean, I don't know how true to life they are, um, but it would be great to hear a little bit about what you've been through or what you went through when you were in the police and how you handled it then and how you might handle it now if, if it would be any differently with the benefit of hindsight. So, Laura, a lot of your conflicts were around uh, mental health issues that you, you, you've had and you, you have and you've spoken out uh, openly about. Um, so can you just share a little bit about what you went through uh, and how, how you handled it? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't watch any like police drama <laughs> because it just winds me up. <laughs> it just winds me up. Um. I have I had a very mixed bag um, while I was in the police. So while I was in the police, I was diagnosed with bipolar and OCD, and that is what eventually led to my um, medical retirement. Now, just like with any organisation, I had amazing guardian angel officers who were absolutely behind me and beside me. Unfortunately, some of the conflict that came did come from higher up officers that I respected um you know comments like it's such a shame what happened to you because you showed good promise of being a good police officer 
Now, when you are going through a diagnosis and really trying to discover yourself with this really quite destroying um, potential of a, a, um, a condition, and especially where you look up to that person, that really, really made me very angry and very bitter for quite a few years. And it affected me within uh, rock solid as well, because I was like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I'm, I'm not very good. But then emotional intelligence, I started to look at, right, why did they say that? Clearly, the training of higher officers has not was not there in that time when I was in the police force. It was not you know, highly known. I was told not to talk about my mental health because it made other people feel uncomfortable. Again, that came from somebody a bit higher. But the troops on the ground who were with me, um, and yes, some, you know, higher, they were fantastic with me. They were absolutely brilliant. They understood if I needed to take some time or whatever. So I've kind of had both of them, but I've, I did initially take it as an, a personal attack at me. But I think really what it was is just there was just a not a very good understanding by those officers. And why would there be? Because back, you know, in those days, it wasn't really spoken about mental health like yeah. it is now. Um, and I would imagine it would be handled very differently um, now. But I was very fortunate in it was one of my sergeants that actually noticed that something wasn't right and asked me to go to the doctors. So there's very much a mixed bag there like there is in any um uh any organization and, and cole for you i mean coming into uh the police force in the mid 80s you you were going to come you know you're going to experience uh racial prejudice within the force it's again i, I only know what i know th second third hand um but th the police certainly at that period was notorious for um racial prejudice uh, was that your experience? How did you handle it? How did you get through it? And when you were in a, a senior leadership role, what did you do to to change that culture? Great question. But first, can I say to Laura, you know, fantastic story, Laura. Every time you tell me that story, you know, I'm blown away by it. And, you know, I'm also saddened that the police service at a very senior level can't get their heads around the emotional connection and why it's so important to look after your staff and have honest and open conversations yeah. rather than just hide behind policies and practices and procedures because that's what tends to happen. You know, when I was head of a department, the amount of times I had somebody who's on long-term sick leave with a legitimate illness like cancer or something like that, and at six months, uh, HR used to say, well, we're going to put them on half, half pay. And I was like, no, we need to have a conversation first. Don't just automatically do these things. Uh, I want to have a conversation as to why they need to go on half pay and whether they they can come back to work. You know, I even had people working from home just half a day a week just so I can keep them on the record as being on full pay. And I think we need to move away from this, like, oh, such a stringent way of doing things. We need to be more human uh, about everything. Uh, and you're right, Andy, you know, when I joined the police service in the early 80s, I, I literally was a brown speck in a sea of white. You know, I, I, that's the best way I can describe it. And not just that, I went from living in a very multicultural city in Wolverhampton, and I moved to the, the wilds of Derbyshire where I thought I'd gone colorblind. I saw more green than I'd ever seen before. And, uh, and, more, and I thought, you know, cows were solitary animals. They were actually in herds and <laughs> things like that. You know? So it was a culture shock for me in so many different ways. And, of course, 
you know, we lived through the minor strike in my first year and all of the things that I saw with that. And yes, you know, I'd, I'd be lying to say that I didn't experience overt racism and, uh, and prejudice, you know, right throughout my service. I've seen it to some degree or another. I felt alone and I felt excluded. I, I remember going to my first police station and I'm being forced to stand outside the police station so they could uh, take a photo for the local press. And, yeah. you know, I was front page in the local press as the first black officer to come to Swaddling Coat, which is the town that I was in. And I remember Edwina Curry MP, who's our local MP, sends me a handwritten letter welcoming me to the town. And I remember thinking, I wonder if she does that for all police officers, because that's what I am. I just saw myself as a police officer, not as a black or brown police officer. Um, but as time went on, I, I, you know, you know, we get back into the limbic brain. I saw people of my colour or female uh, officers uh, simply throwing the towel in or getting angry and taking the organization to court. Now, my experience is that the vast majority of the people I worked with were good people. They were genuinely good people who wanted to do a good job. And they might they might have been ignorant, but I wouldn't say they were prejudiced. They were they literally didn't know. So there's a lot of education that I could have done with them. And that, of course, is about building relationships. So they get to understand me and I get to understand them, etc. Um, so I saw a lot of people who were going through a similar experience and they went, they had a limbic response. They either, you know, upped and left the organization or they took the organization to court and they were bitter and twisted forevermore. I just don't think that that's a healthy way of dealing with it. A, it doesn't resolve the situation and B, nobody really survives that kind of, that, that kind of experience. So for me, I always ask myself the question, how can I change this? How can I influence this, this culture? And I very often say that you, you shouldn't look at your, there's the circle of concern and there's a circle of influence or control. You can't worry about the circle of concern all the time. You know, if you spent all your life worrying about all the things that you've got no control over, you'd never get a, a proper night's sleep and you'd make yourself ill. So I looked at what could I influence? How could I influence? And I started understanding that there were other black and Asian officers around my force in different police stations. Uh, I started meeting up with them. I remember we used to have secret meetings in each other's houses because it was in those in, in that area that if two black officers were seen in a police station talking to each other in a corridor, people would stare. You know, they would be wondering what on earth are they discussing? What are they planning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we were acutely aware of that. So we started meeting in each other's houses and we started forming an informal network. That network became stronger and stronger, and we knew that this was being happening. This was being done in other police forces as well. We started talking to those other police forces as well, and consequently, uh, we eventually created what we what is now called the Black Police Association. And ironically, uh, they've just had the National Black Police Association uh, AGM, which finished today, I understand, in Bedfordshire. Um, such was the the case that uh, I became chair of the local Derbyshire Black Police Association, where in 1998 I became vice president of the National Black Police Association. Um, this was the first proper full year of the NBPA, and I was here. I was as the as the vice president. Here's me, a little lad from Derbyshire, having to travel down to London once a week, and I ended up meeting with successive Home Secretaries on a one-to-one. -one, you know, Jack Straw and David Blunkett. We ended up. Being at, and I sat on the Stephen Lawrence board and I read the Lawrence Inquiry report, McPherson report when it came out, uh, when it was embargoed. I remember talking to chief constables up and down the country about how they need to shape policing. 
I remember being involved in setting targets for uh, recruitment, retention, and progression of uh, black officers. And there were times when I had to pinch myself and say, I'm still that young, you know, I was an inspector, then a young inspector from Gobshire. I'm doing all of this now. So when you're focusing on your circle of influence, you realize that you can expand that and eventually you can impact on your circle of concern is the point that I'm trying to make. So when I was a very reluctant person, a reluctant leader in the police service, I, I did 10 years as a constable. I didn't want to do anything else, but somebody said to me, you really owe it to yourself and owe it to others to start getting promoted. So as I got to you know leadership levels and I started to realize I can influence things, I decided that's the way I'm going to change the culture. So my last eight or nine years were dedicated at superintendent level, senior level. And wherever I went, and I managed a lot of departments from, you know, from crime support like um, surveillance and drug squad right through to uh, corporate services and contact management centers and learning and development and operations. And wherever I went, I wanted to carry my style of emotional intelligence leadership through and i didn't really focus in on the race issue or the female issue or the sexual orientation issue i focused in on inclusive leadership uh, because i wanted to prove the point that if you create inclusive cultures you will have no problems in creating diversity within those cultures Carl, that's absolutely fantastic thank you thank you both for your stories there uh, i love that uh, circle of influence versus circle of concern i think that's incredibly powerful and a very practical tool as well. In other words, deal with what you can deal with and, and don't lose your, waste your energy on everything else. Um, Neil Giller is... you find, Andy, sorry, that yeah. mo most of the solutions to life are the kind of things that your parents would probably say to you. Yeah. You know, they are simple <laughs> adages, and there's yeah. a lot to be said in the, all of the, the, the quotes that we hear from way back when. You know, it's the kind of thing my mum would say, don't worry about yeah. what you can't, can't change, just worry about what you can change, and that's it. I say I will go and tidy my room after this. Uh, <laughs> uh, going back to to your response to Laura's um, comments, Neil Giller has said it's time to be more human, uh, and Wendy Walsh has said um, she agrees we need to do things more humanly. Um, and and Wendy's just moved job and, and moved from uh, Washington, I think, to Texas, if I remember that rightly. So I hope the move went well, Wendy, and thanks for joining us. Hopefully, a future guest on the podcast. Uh, and Bala said thank you as well. I think that that those comments about it's time to be more human in reaction to, to Laura's uh, experiences have really struck a chord with people um, joining us on the on, on the broadcast. Um, okay, so I don't normally do this, uh, but we have spent uh, our time talking about your experiences in the police force. You're both you've both been out of the force for, for a while. Cole, you've shared a lot about what you're doing in terms of working with leaders in terms of emotional intelligence. Um, Laura, I love what you and Barry do with Rock Solid. You know I'm a massive fan, uh, but you haven't told anyone what that is, and I think it would be only fair uh, to invite you to do so. So can you just share a little bit about Rock Solid and why you're so wonderful? <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, yes, um, we own a company called Rock Solid Health and we help people to live healthier and happier lives. Um, and everything that we do in Rock Solid has actually come out of crisis um, from what we went through. Um, and we realised that the fundamentals for people living a happy and healthy life is by looking after the six pillars of health. You know, sleep, water, nutrition, 
movement, uh, thought management and de-stress me time. Um, and we work with people who, you know, lots of different ranges from people who are teachers and trainers all the way up to people that are CEOs and um, business owners working within burnout as well. Yeah. But it's our absolute mission just to help people create happier, healthier lives so they can live longer and enjoy life. And, and I knew that I could bring you in to talk about the impact of health and well-being on how we engage with people, um, but I really wanted to to, to, to go down this road. Um, but would it be fair to say on this theme that if you're if you're healthy, if you're rested, if you're mentally focused, uh, conflict is going to happen less often and be easier to navigate and respond to? Absolutely, absolutely. Because you know, even if we haven't slept. You know, we have a hormone called adenosine, which will kind of um, accumulate over the day. And if we haven't had enough time to sleep at night, it's only sleep that enables us to get rid of that. We wake up the next morning and we feel anxious. And when we haven't slept, we're more emotionally vulnerable. Okay, we're more mentally vulnerable and we're going to make bad decisions and we are not going to be our best. And so by fueling our bodies, by understanding you know, the thinking mind, being rested, moving your body, you really are able to step into that true leader and really embrace your passion for life and go for it at a much, much higher level. And and Barry, who is your partner in crime, who I was so rude to at the beginning of, of the show, has, has added better mental resistance and resilience as comments. Uh, and I think that all goes together. And just to bring everything full circle, uh, you both started out in sharing your stories uh, of conflict in the force by talking about how some of your colleagues would respond uh, viscerally if you like, emotionally, um, to the conflict rather than in that um, uh, considered thoughtful way that really takes the edge off of the conflict. And, Carl, you shared the story of um, your your colleague dragging out the, the handcuffs and truncheon and you you just talking. Uh, and obviously, the, the less sleep you have, the less rested you are, the more your limbic brain, your, your chimp, is going to jump into action. Uh, so- but, yeah. Uh, but Andy, on that as well, you know, very, very quickly, because I know we're, we're strapped for time. But if we were able to just check in with people first thing in the morning for briefing, how are you doing? What's going on at home? I've had an argument with wife. OK, maybe not the best person to send out to, you know, a 999 or something yeah. if they're not going to be able to handle their self in the best manner for the other people to keep that situation safe. And that transfers through to any role. You know, one of the things that I've been saying to people when I've been doing sessions on uh, building relationships when you're socially distanced, and that includes with your own team, is don't just pick up, uh, get on Zoom calls or Teams calls with your team around agendas, but pick up the phone to them individually and say, how are you doing? How's everyone in the house? How are you coping with lockdowns and so forth? And it's the same principle. Just check in with people and know where your team are because just as you don't want to send out a highly stressed, exhausted police officer at a 999 call, you don't want to send a, a highly stressed, um, exhausted executive on a customer call or whatever it might be. It might have slightly less uh, damaging repercussions, but as a leader, there's still reper- repercussions you want to avoid anyway. Um, Carla and, and Laura, 
for people listening, thank you for engaging. Stay on because we're going to carry on and we're going to record our Thursday podcast. Um, but certainly for for the, for this, we, we have overrun our normal time, but it was worth it. And I'm sure people will stay gripped. Thank you very much for being guests on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's been amazing. And thank you, Cole, for allowing me to spare this, share this space with you. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a huge pleasure and always great to share space with uh, Loz. Thank you again to, to Carl and Laura. As as the responses and the reactions of people listening live uh, on, on our live stream broadcast showed, I, I thought that was a very inspirational and uh, a very touching at times conversation, particularly towards the end um, when Laura and, and, and Cole were talking about the impact of the the prejudices and the misunderstanding not misunderstanding the lack of understanding that they faced within their roles um over the course of their career uh, i think that although we focus very much on the police so much of that was transferable into whatever it is you do and from the work that i do with my clients i know that many of the challenges that we covered in that conversation are not uncommon they may have less of an impact to a degree, as I touched on, but they're not uncommon challenges. So hopefully there's a lot that you can take from the conversation. On Thursday, uh, we have our short podcast where I talk to, to Colin Laura about the impact of professional relationships on their career. They, they, they approach that in a different way to many of my guests, more from a theoretical perspective uh, than from actual scenarios. And I think it's very useful the way that they approach it. And there's a lot to take from that conversation as well. So please join us again for that on Thursday. Uh, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I hope you do too. If you do, please rate, review and share this. Let other people uh, get the benefit from this conversation as well. Either way, hopefully I'll see you Thursday, but certainly I'll see you again soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.